Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. The various episodes of this show are put together as a series of segments. These segments will cover everything from cybersecurity news to analyzing techniques employed by adversaries. We will also be interviewing cybersecurity experts, and we're going to try and have a little fun with hacker history. And so here we are, episode number five. I want to thank everybody that has been supporting this show since its inception and take a moment to welcome any new listeners that have joined us today. I was initially quite reluctant to take on this project because of the unknown unknowns, but feel really good about the progress we are making and where this is all going. We have some really great content lined up, and I'm excited to continue on this journey with you. If you have any suggestions or feedback, or simply want to say hello, you can send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. We would love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. We're going to be kicking off today's show with an edition of the Adversary Toolbox, where SANS DEFER instructor Matt Bromley is going to take us through the second segment on lateral movement. After that, we're going to be talking with Eric Capuano. He is the CTO and founder of Recon InfoSec and one of the main driving forces behind the OpenSock network defense range. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with him and hope you do as well. Hey everyone, this is Matt from Lima Charlie and welcome to the Adversary Toolbox. In this segment, we're going to spend a few minutes chatting about a particular adversary tool or tactic. Our goal is to bring light to the different TTPs that adversaries use so that as defenders, we can be on the lookout and aware of how tools can be used or abused within our environments. In this episode, we're going to continue our focus on lateral movement tools. This follows up on the last episode where we discussed PS Exec, a member of Microsoft's SysInternal suite. Today, we're going to discuss PA Exec. That's right, one letter different, a remote execution tool that may sound a lot like PS Exec, but is different in a few key areas. Similar to PS Exec, PA Exec is an excellent tool for remote process execution and system monitoring. One key difference between them, PS Exec is closed source, whereas PA Exec is open source, and the code is readily available for anyone to review, download, or modify. The one key differentiator called out by the PA Exec developers is that PS Exec, the Microsoft version, is not redistributable. And so in fact, the little EULA that everyone accepts when they run PS Exec states that. Some system administrators and other software packagers wanted a way to manage their systems with redistributable software, and thus PA Exec was born. In fact, many features between the two are slightly similar, if not identical, including command line switches, basic operations, variable naming, things like that. From an adversarial lens, looking at the MITRE attack matrix, PA exec is used for many of the same capabilities as PS exec. It can create accounts, create and execute remote services, and of course, be used for lateral movement and transfer of files between systems. Adversaries love tools like this for a simple reason. One set of credentials with enough privileges gives them the ability to move across an entire network quickly, assuming there's no segmentation and a flat network is in place. Adversaries will often script their attacks, including PA exec commands in their automation to quickly move from one to many systems. One group that was very famous for their use of PA exec was Fin7, a financially motivated threat group that primarily targeted US-based retail, restaurant, and hospitality sectors. Similar to PS exec, detecting PA exec is not impossible. 
In our experience, PA exec has significantly less representation amongst system administrators. So security teams may be able to easily prioritize PA exec detections. Of course, always check and see if it is used legitimately. And if so, establishing known and permitted user accounts can help raise fidelity in true positive detections. Unfortunately, little tricks like the PS exec registry key are not available in PA exec. However, there are some telltale signs on both the source and target systems which investigators can look for. Despite some threat actors loving PA exec and others perhaps using it as a secondary or tertiary option, PA exec can easily be detected with Lima Charlie. From creation of prefetch files to running processes and established network connectivity between two systems, we can prioritize certain artifacts to understand how PA exec may be used or abused in our environment. And that's it for this episode of the Adversary Toolbox. Join me next time where we'll continue our exploration of adversarial tactics and techniques, again, keeping the focus on lateral movement and the things we can do to prepare our detections. See you next time. This episode is brought to you by Lima Charlie, makers of cybersecurity tools and supporting infrastructure delivered as a service. Lima Charlie's approach is very similar to the way Amazon Web Services delivers components of IT infrastructure, but the technologies are all focused around cybersecurity and automating operations. Things like EDR, Windows Event Log Monitoring, multi-source telemetry ingestion, data routing at the event level, file integrity monitoring, memory dumps at scale, Yara scanning, curated detection rules, integrations with Velociraptor, Atomic Red Team, and many others. The list just goes on and on and is growing all the time. Everything is available on demand and designed API first using infrastructure as code. It's a DevOps-friendly approach to cybersecurity that is long overdue. If you're curious and want to check it out, you can sign up for the full-featured free tier without ever talking to a salesperson at limacharlie.io. Next up, my conversation with Eric Capuano, CTO and founder of Recon InfoSec. Uh, thanks for being here today, Eric. Hey, thanks a lot, Chris. Really, really excited to be here with you guys. Uh, before we get going, do you want to tell us what Recon InfoSec does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are a managed detection response provider. So uh, to the folks that are maybe unfamiliar with the term, we are essentially a security operations center uh, for organizations large enough to need one, but maybe not large enough to build one internally, right? So all the trimmings of hiring folks and building out a seam and SOAR and all these complicated uh, technologies, um, there's a lot of organizations that choose to outsource that to you know, a credible and you know, dependable uh, service provider. And that's what we are. We are that uh, SOC as a service, if you will. And that's our primary focus. Now, um, uh, some other awesome things that we're involved in is uh, we do provide training to uh, folks that do that line of work for larger organizations. So, for instance, a Fortune 500 company that probably has invested in building out their own security operations uh, capability. Um, we've provided trainings for countless organizations at, you know, th at that scale um, on how to do uh, security operations kind of at the, at the, at the pace and, and tempo and you know, agility that, that we do. Uh, so that's another thing we do. And um, that's kind of spawned off, or I would say actually was inspired by uh, a project that, that, that we uh, created several years back, I think you're, you're familiar with, uh, called OpenSOC. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll probably talk more about that in just a bit. Yeah. But that's our, those are our primary focuses. I'm always curious about how people came to a career in cybersecurity. And I was looking at some of the tweets you made recently, and uh, I was wondering what sparked your interest in computers. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you know, my interest in computers um, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, like like most in this industry, I started at a very young age. You know, um, you know, computers were not even really household items um, until I was maybe. 10 or 11 years old, right? So you, maybe you knew one person that had a computer and, you know, you every opportunity you had to go over to their house and use their computer, right? It was a really fun yeah. thing. Uh, but this is like pre-internet, right? Like, or at least pre-widespread uh, internet access. And so um, so what really sparked my interest in computers, though, if you get down to the the, the real root of it, I grew up in a, in a maybe less than ideal place, uh, kind of a under, underserved, underprivileged area uh, of Houston, and, um, and there wasn't really much for me to do. It was inner city and, you know, it's like, so there's not a whole lot of safe things for, you know, an, a nine-year-old kid to, to, to go get into. Um, and my, uh, my, uh, uncle at the time had given me a, uh, a really, really like beat up, you know, 386 computer with, you know, eight megs nice. of memory and 200 megahertz processor. But to me, this was the world, right? Like it, it, you know, it didn't even have enough memory to surf the internet, but I didn't care. Like it was the first and only computer I'd ever had. Uh, it was very limited, but, but I, you know, I can't count how many times I took that thing apart, thought I broke it, figured out how to, you know, put it back together and make it work again. And, 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 and then the, the, the joy kind of just, just took off from there. But, uh, I think, I think the tweet you might be uh, referring to is it, it this is right around that same time. Uh, I was saving up, you know, every last dollar I could get my hands on to buy a, a proper modern computer, which at the time was something more like 64 megabytes of RAM instead of eight, right? Um, and you know, uh, so uh, I'm saving up every 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 penny, every dollar I have, and, and that's that's a hard thing to do, you know, in that economic, you know, sort of place in life. But um, but I was I was kind of in the final stretch. Uh, I, I needed like uh, I don't know, like a, another hundred dollars and. Um, and I had a, a, a teacher at the time, Miss Olson, that uh, she was uh, my seventh grade teacher um, that knew I had this this joy and passion for computers. And she she took the time to kind of get to know me as a person as well. And so she knew a lot about my situation and my upbringing and, the, and things of that nature. And and uh, and and one of the probably most generous things anyone ever did for me as a child was uh, one day it was like right at the end of the school year, uh, Miss Olson, she wrote me a check for exactly the amount that I needed, uh, to go and buy that, that computer. Wow. Um, and, um, and I, I went and I did that and it was, a, it was a compact presario. I mean, which at the time might have as well been a Lamborghini to me, right? I mean, 64 megs of Ram, 380 megahertz processor, uh, you know, this thing. Did just it have was, a turbo button? <laughs> no, this was, this was, this was post, uh, the turbo button. But, uh, but, you know, for all, for all intents and purposes, you know, that really unlocked, so many things for me because that put me on the internet as a kid and uh and you you know where that path leads right and that's yeah. where i think a lot of folks that that are in this industry um have similar backgrounds and similar stories that they say well when i was a kid the internet became kind of my my go-to right to 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 to, to find friends and to find hobbies and to, to to get into things like muds and you know gaming and um or chat forums or you know swapping questionable legitimate software things like that you know whatever whatever it is that somebody gets gets into um in our era that was kind of the thing you know um but uh but yeah that's kind of the the, the short story it, it's a it. great story uh yeah and shout out to miss olson it's it's amazing what some educators can do for people i saw that on twitter and thought it was a great story um how far along in that journey did you realize that cybersecurity was a thing so you're like into computers from a young age doing the um, BB boards and all that stuff. <laughs> so pretty, pretty quickly because it didn't take me long to end up in some of the darker corners of 
computing, you know, tinkering with malware. And, you know, this is the days of sub seven and, you know, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the various remote access tools that were widely available that, that there was no real defenses or detections. Like this wasn't a thing, this wasn't a concept. And mm-hmm. so, uh, back orifice and things like that. Um, and uh, of course, like curiosity would just take the better of you. And you just, you go down these rabbit holes of playing with these things and seeing what they can do. Uh, this is the days of hacking AOL with, you know, you know, bots and progs and, and, and punters and all that stuff. And so, um, I very quickly learned about, uh, the, the security aspect of computers, but this was before there was a clearly defined, like that wasn't a career path that was, yep. there was no formal education in it or anything at that time. Um, but it was definitely, that, that's where, that's where the seed was starting to sprout into what would become a multi-billion dollar industry, um, uh, as it matured. Um, so, so it's funny because yeah, I was, I was in security stuff before there was a term for that. It was, it was hobbyist kind of frowned upon type of thing, you know, uh, messing with these types of things um, that, that ultimately kind of led down this path. Back when hacking was still kind of had this innocence that's since been lost, right? Yeah, for some some good reasons and some not so good reasons, yeah. <laughs> your career is super interesting. I was looking at your LinkedIn and, uh, you know, you spent time engineering with the Air Force, working on drones, uh, built chips with Samsung, uh, cyber warfare operations with the Texas National Guard, like just so many cool things there um is there something in your career before recon infosec that sticks out in your mind as special like a particular organization or or team something that made it special that's a tough one because i could easily pick several uh that that were very instrumental and 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 pivotal for me you know uh i did kind of i I did sort of depart you know computers whenever i joined the air force when i was 18 because the air force was the best the best possible exit for me from, you know, my, my, right. you know, my, my status, you know, as a, as a, as a kid and, and, and trying to go and, you know, make something bigger and better for myself, you know, have hopes to go to college and things like that. So went to the air force, the air force at the time had no, no real, you know, heavy investment in, in cyber career fields. And uh, so I got plucked out and, and put into, to fighter F-16 avionics and which became eventually MQ-1, MQ-9 uh, uh, predator drone avionics, which was interesting and, and, and fundamentally relies on a lot of the same skill set that I use today in cybersecurity, you know, critical thinking and, uh, you know, root cause identification, you know, all that stuff. But, uh, but it was very much like I, I didn't use a computer, but for, you know, surfing the web, checking email kind of stuff like most folks. And it wasn't until after I got out of the Air Force, went to work for Samsung in, 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 in engineering uh, chemical vapor deposition was the fancy term for it. But, but basically making, making uh, microchips, realized that wasn't really what, what drove me. Um, I didn't get as much sort of uh, the, the sense of mission, the sense of purpose that I did when I was in the Air Force. Right. So what that did is that probably actually rejoined the Air Force into the Texas Air National Guard. And that's when they said, hey, we have spots over here in this cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity element. And... And I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, that kind of aligns with everything I ever did as a kid and kind of fell away from because at the time, doing that stuff as a kid meant you'd end up in IT. I had no desires to end up in <laughs> IT. So so now that like the security career field had sort of materialized, uh, and here's a here's an entry point there for me, I took it. And so I could say I could say one thing, the Air Force made me so much of who I am today, uh, hands down, you know, uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat, even though there were aspects of it that, that honestly weren't, weren't the greatest. But, you know, I could say that, that the, the, uh, the Air National Guard, you know, opened a lot of doors for me as well. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, there was a position I had with the Texas Department of Public Safety working under um, um, who, someone who was ultimately a really good friend of mine, uh, Aaron Blackstone, 
one of the best bosses I ever had that really, he, he, he took me in as, as his, his, you know, sock manager and there was no sock at the time. And he gave me just carte blanche, just, Hey, I trust that you know what the right things are to do. Just go and go and do them. And I was able to raise the bar for that organization in, in, in unthinkable ways in a very short period of time because of that trust he put in me. Um, and so I have a lot of uh, that team that I had assembled there and the capabilities that we, uh, that we were demonstrating uh, was something I was very, very proud of as well, which is a lot of what inspired the confidence I had to break away and start recon back in uh, 2015. So, um, so yeah, there's, I, I, it's hard to pick one of those because they were yeah, all, I, you know, so, so instrumental, uh, you know, in my becoming who I am. It's really cool. I've heard similar things about the Air Force being a good experience for other people in cybersecurity. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, we've mentioned it a couple times, but, uh, you know, you're one of the driving forces behind the Open Sock Network Defense Range. Uh, can you tell us about that and how it came about? Absolutely. So, um, so one of the, one of the, uh, the capabilities I, I sharpened pretty heavily uh, with my position with the Department of Public Safety was having to kind of build really, really strong security operations capabilities on a really uh, <laughs> minimal budget. And, uh, and so that's a perfect kind of cross-section alignment with open source, right? Like learning how to wield some of these open source projects that exist in order to, 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 to accomplish the mission. Um, and so a product of a lot of the time I spent kind of mastering a lot of these different open source tools, I said, you know, what would be really cool is to somehow give back to the community by, sh by demonstrating, hey, look at what can be done with nothing but open source capabilities. And what better way to do that in a way that folks have a lot of fun with, like a CTF. And so, so oddly enough, I actually started what, what it wasn't known as OpenSock at the time, but uh, I started this project with the Department of Public Safety first. We ran it at a couple of conferences there, um, had some help from, from my DPS team to, to kind of run it that, that, that couple of times that we did. Uh, but then whenever I made the decision to leave DPS, I asked uh, the the CISO the there, I said, hey, do you guys have any wherewithal to continue running this? He's like, there's no way we're going to be able to run this without you. You, This was your brainchild. I said, do you mind if I carry it on? And so I rebranded it at the time to OpenSock, uh, which you know, carries that strong representation for open source tools that can power a security operations center, right? And so we've, you know, over the years, and, and I have to I have to give a shout out to Whitney Champion because there's no way I could have scaled it to what it is today without her DevOps and orchestration and automation skills. Because the first iteration of that environment I built by hand, it took me six months and I had no clean and easy way to like tear it down and rebuild it for duct tape events. and bubble gum. Exactly. And, and Whitney came along and she turned it into a push button deploy that whole range so that we could awesome. go and run it for a thousand people at DEF CON and expose them to all these awesome open source tools. Uh, what they're able to do, you know, and, 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 and what's really cool is how we've evolved that tool set as new and awesome tools at the scene, right? Because, you know, uh, you know, we started off on, uh, you know, uh, uh, various different log aggregation tools, but then as, as others have, have emerged and evolved, we've migrated or, you know, OS query has been around for a little while, but then Velociraptor hit the scene and it was kind of like, all right, Velociraptor is kind of the better choice for some of the things that we do here. Uh, but don't get me wrong, we still have OS query, but it's just, it's it's awesome being able to be the the loudspeaker or the marketing budget for these open source projects that don't have one, right? Um, right. And and we're doing it in a way that 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 really has a, a, a pretty significant impact on the industry because I I can't tell you how many folks have come back to us and said, 
I landed a job after winning that CTF last year. Or, you know, we've even had members of the OpenSock team that, that the, the volunteers that help support us every year land jobs because of their participation with OpenSock. And so it's definitely raised the bar for a lot of folks and, 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 and helped people kind of get a foot into the industry, get some exposure into the, the life of a SOC analyst. And then I think the other really cool impact is folks that come in and play, they're like, well, this is amazing. I don't have any of this stuff at work. All right, but guess what? There's nothing stopping you. I mean, other than a little bit of elbow grease, you can yeah. go and deploy OS Query or Velociraptor or Greylog or you know Open Search. Like, there's you know these are all free and open source tools. So what 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 barrier remains, right? And so that's the cool thing is being able to enable defenders of under budgeted or you know uh, uh, otherwise kind of um, you know disadvantaged organizations because everybody deserves to have some defense in this fight. Totally. You mentioned a couple open source projects in, in your response there. Uh, is there any that you want to give some attention to right now just to help people learn about them? All of them. I mean, <laughs> I, try, I, try not, I try not to pick favorites, even though I, right. as, a pra- as a practitioner, I have my favorites, but that's not because they're better. It's just because my, maybe my workflow or my way of thinking about things is more compatible. Um, and so it's no secret, folks, if they follow me on, on Twitter or, or have seen in my YouTube, that I'm a huge fan of Velociraptor just because of how much power is, uh, is, is available in that, in, that, um, in that tool. But that's not to say in the slightest that it's like better than anything else because there's, there's really strong capabilities of, for instance, tools like OS Query and, and you know, Fleet DM, which were huge fans of those guys as well, in giving you, you know, that, that rare capability of interrogating your endpoints at scale, which, yeah, if you have top-shelf EDR, you can do that, no problem. But what about everybody else? You know? I mean, how, how, how can the, the guy at the credit union down the street that has you know, uh, three IT people and, and you know, one of them is half responsible for all the security – he needs an option too, right? And so, um, so those are a couple tools. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's- so cybersecurity is challenging, constantly in flux. Do you have thoughts on what needs to change in cybersecurity? Are we stuck somewhere as an industry? My mind always goes to like the zero trust marketing stuff, but maybe you have some different opinions on what's wrong. Well, I do, I do have, I do have some thoughts on that, right? And of course, we're we're entering into the opinion sphere, right? So, um, so you know. A couple of opinions I have on that. One is, and I think a lot of folks would probably agree that that we're way too heavily a vendor and product driven um, um, industry right now. Right, we're we're not necessarily uh, focusing on the problems that that need to be solved, but we're focusing on the problems that someone else tells us mm-hmm. they have a solution for. Right, and yeah. and we've got to get out of this this you know this you know. I'm trying to think of a good term here, the, 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 the tail wagging the dog, if you will, like, yeah, like, yeah. We, you know, we shouldn't be subscribing to what the, the, the ecosystem of vendors tell us we need to do next. We should be thinking more data driven of what, what threats is our org actually facing? Because it yeah. might be a much more precise prescription, if you will, to then go decide where to focus our time, our, our energy, our budget, uh, than, you know, whatever the new emerging, you know, XDR, next gen plus, you know, uh, uh, you know, product is. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to see change is, you know, folks listening less to vendors and, and more to the data that, that they can create themselves inside their own organizations about, about where their, uh, their most prominent attack vectors and their most, their most recurring issues are. Uh, and then, and then going back to just the good old fashioned basics, the best practices, right. Which yeah. are widely available, right? You can get best practices for Microsoft, Azure, you know, AWS, GCP, and all these things. But like, 
we skip over those because nobody's trying to sell them to us. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's like, yeah. you know, it, it's, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the, gets the, the grease. Right. So going back to the basics and, and being more data driven and, and the decisions and the money that we spend would be one cool thing. And, uh, and then, and then of course, um, you know, focusing on, on subject matter expertise, I think that some organizations definitely get this right, but others still kind of are going down the path of, well, you know, we don't have any in-house expertise on security, but we're still going to make bill be responsible for it. It's like, but you're setting bill up to fail here because, you know, he's, he's the network engineer, he's the firewall guy or, or whatever, like he can't possibly do his job and also be covering the aspects of security from everything from preventative and proactive measures to, well, what happens when shit hits the fans? Excuse my language, but like what happens when there's an actual incident? Now Bill's got to have no, having no training at all. He's going to have to respond and deal with this. Like it's just not, it's not a fair situation for a lot of folks that aren't actually investing in the people and the training side of this as well. Um, But, uh, but otherwise, you know, I, I, I would like to say, I think, we're seeing we're seeing the, the, the industry is evolving and maturing and, and I think generally heading in the right direction. It's just sometimes we we take the slower scenic route. Yeah, your, your answer actually leads into my next question. Um, you know, you're your son's deeper instructor. So you you teach people how to uh, go help companies when they're having their worst days. Uh, sadly, a lot of times the, the first time that a company talks to a incident response outfit is is when they've had their first breach. Is there any low-hanging fruit things people should do or shouldn't do if they don't have security and they've just found out that they've been compromised, you know, before the good guys come in? If you don't mind, I'd like to start even beyond before that, right? Like before the moment that you realize you've been compromised, there's things that you should be doing now. There's things you should be doing yesterday in preparation for the inevitable day that something's going to happen, right? You know, the only variable is how severe will it be? But, but things that you should be thinking about right now, I, I hate that some of this is going to sound like, you know, uh, of course, everybody knows that, but like, you know, MFA on all your external facing stuff, right? If I tell folks this tongue in cheek, but there's some serious truth to this. If every org overnight just enforced, adopted and enforced MFA, the IR industry would probably get cut in to, to it'd be cut to, to 30% of what it is today, right? The IR yeah. and, and, and disaster, you know, response stuff, because so many of them start that way. Not, not all, but, yeah. but so, so, so many. So going back to best practices of just like one of the industry leaders saying that these are the basics that you should have covered before you're going out and buying a seam or an XDR platform. Like, you know, if you're not enforcing MFA, you're just, you're just spending money over here to detect the problems that you ignored over here. Um, and so the basics are one, but let me talk about one that maybe isn't so basic, right? Because MFA got it. We've all heard that one. But one thing I wish every organization I've ever dropped in to do an IR for, one thing I wish I could have told them six months prior is, hey, I know this uh, this probably isn't the top of your priority list, but get some sort of log aggregation tool in place and you don't need to spend any money on it, right? If you've got a little bit of virtualization resources to spare, Stand up a gray log instance. I'm a huge fan of gray log for this purpose because it, it, even though it's, yeah, people say, well, why not an elk stack? Because gray log is just easier to deploy and it's mm-hmm. easier for the, the busy, uh, multitasking IT person to, to stand it up to get value out of it right away. So stand up something like a gray log instance, get the beats agents out on all your endpoints and start collecting and aggregating those logs. Because when something inevitably happens and I come in to try, try to help you figure it out, that's going to cut the time it takes me to do it in about half, right? Like I'm going to be that much faster, that much you know, more precise in figuring out your root cause and, and the scope and severity of the damage. But that's unfortunately never the case. So we, we go in and we have to do heavy IR, which means like I'm going to have to go 
and, and, and possibly put hands on all these systems or deploy agents on all these systems to retroactively pull back not not the exact evidence I need, but the the, the and the, the peripheral evidence, you know, uh, that that will I will have to reassemble to, to come back and be able to tell the story of what happened. That's longer, it's harder, and it's sometimes less precise, right? So it's like mm-hmm. if we could just turn on the flight data recorder before the plane takes, it's it's easier than trying to reassemble all the pieces and find out what happened, right? So things like log aggregation. But then one other thing I'll say is you cannot let the first experience you have with an intrusion be an actual intrusion, right? And I know that sounds counterproductive because like, well, then how do we get experience with it? Well, training, you know, simulation, right? Going through the motions. And it, that starts as a non-technical tabletop. Okay, that's better than nothing. But ultimately, you want to evolve to, okay, let's actually put it through the paces. Let's let's do the thing or let's at least Let's get down technical and let's say, okay, this is what's happened. What would we do and demonstrate to me that you could actually do these things? Because if your incident response plan, which you have, of course, because you're, you're being thoughtful, but if your incident response plan is based on assumptions that have never been tested, it's not a plan. It's a, it's a, it's a hope for the best, right? Um, so, right? So test your plan. And look, at the end of the day, you don't have time for any of that stuff. Then your incident response plan, this sounds a little self-serving, but your incident response plan should just simply say, call so-and-so vendor, right? We know this, right. these folks, we've got an MSA in place with them, you know, or right. a, a retainer or whatever. That's our IR plan is to call that vendor. And that vendor is going to tell you what to do and not do as, as far yeah. as preserving evidence. And please don't trample on everything, trying to solve <laughs> the problem yourself because you're just going to make yeah. it harder. So those are a couple of thoughts that I would share. Oh, those are great. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest challenges for people that are defending organizations today? So I'm I'm thinking of your IT guy that's been dubbed with security. Uh, he's looking at all the tools and, you know, he's got logging turned on with Greylog. What, what's his biggest problem? Organizations of different sizes and different maturities are going to have very different problem sets, right? Because, you know, the, 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 the person in the situation you just described has the problem of, of not necessarily knowing, you know, um, what, where, where to where to prioritize, where to focus, where to look? Because if I'm if I'm dual hatting and I'm splitting my time between IT operations and then also trying to look for bad guys or something, I'm going to tell you right now, you're you're hopeless. Like you're you're not going to succeed at the looking for bad guys or detecting threats just simply because it's not a part time responsibility. So that's that's one one problem set. But to talk about maybe organizations that are a little bit higher up the echelon, you know, maybe a little, you know, you got one or two dedicated people and they've got some of the tooling that they need. Now it becomes an issue of prioritizing. Okay, so we've got we've got detection capabilities. We've got you know EDR deployed or IDS, IPS, or whatever. But now we've, we're funneling all these things into one place, and maybe that's a seam, or maybe it's an Outlook inbox, right? Hopefully not, but I, I, I've seen it. Um, <laughs> it, it. But now now the problem becomes uh, how are we how are we racking and stacking and triaging these things in a meaningful and effective way so that we don't get buried under this impossible backlog where you know you missed the ransomware attack because you hadn't worked through the. F- 400 phishing alerts you got this week or something, you know? And so again, you know, different, but then you go a little bit further and you figure some of those things out Then it becomes, you know, test your detections capability versus assuming that it's doing what you think it's doing. You know, I've had organizations that bought this big fancy DLP tool, you know, data loss prevention, and they deployed it and then they checked the box. We're good. Like DLP is, is handled. And we came in and did a purple team assessment and I showed them like seven different ways we exfilled data and not, not in a, subversive way like your dlp should have caught and stopped this it did neither and they're like we're shocked we had no idea that it wasn't working like well that's why you have to test these things and so um and so you know different problems at different levels right but um 
I, again, I, I, I would like to say with optimism that, that we're seeing the needle move. We're seeing the, you know, the, 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 bar, the bar move in the right direction. So the team at Recon InfoSec recently started the Thursday Defensive. Uh, yeah. I've sat in on one. I'm curious to know if you could explain it to everybody. Yeah, for sure. So in, incredibly excited about it. Uh, it is brand new. So, so what it is is effectively just a, a, a 30-minute informal conversation between defenders. And when I say defenders, we're not obviously exclusive to only people working in defense, but that's the focus of the conversation. So, um, but anyone's obviously um, welcome to attend and we'll generally have a guest on each week that's doing something in the defensive side of InfoSec. And so tomorrow we actually have Mike Cohen, who is the creator of Velociraptor and okay, you know, no surprise there. Uh, but, but, you know, you know, you know, he's, he's obviously, he's pushing, he's pushing the ball forward in some pretty big ways uh, for the defensive side of this industry. And so we'll have him on to talk about, but it's not going to be, for instance, it's not going to be necessarily a pitch. Well, not that it would matter. Velociraptor is a free tool, so there's nothing to pitch, but he's not just going to chill about Velociraptor so much as share some of his thoughts on enhancing uh, detection response capabilities on the endpoint through all the variety of things that are available there. And so, um, so we're really excited about it. It had an, an overwhelming uh, reception by the by the the industry and the community. Um, our first our first episode last week, I think we had close to ninety folks show up, um, wow. which was wow, like way way over what I expected. Um, but I want to first give credit and a shout out um, to the folks at Red Siege. Um, so Tim Medine is a really good friend of mine and a fellow uh, Sans instructor. Uh, Tim Medine is really he's kind of the the, uh, the visionary. Him, him and 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 and, and Jay Con over at Red Siege. Really, the visionaries with this great idea, they started the Wednesday offensive, which is the same format, just flipped the script to offensive side instead of defensive. And I observed them for some time. I said, you know, this would this is an awesome format. It's a really easy and convenient thing to do, and it's valuable to the community. Let's, you know, and so I, I approached them and said, hey, are you guys okay with us doing a defensive portion? He's like, if you if you guys want to do it, you've got the bandwidth, go for it. Um, but but I, I got to give credit that that I was inspired directly from what they've been doing with Wednesday offensive. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm going to drag some of the people from Lima. I don't think I'll drag them. I'm going to invite them to join me tomorrow to uh, listen to Mike. Yeah, you should because you know we have uh, we have uh, Maxime from from Lima Charlie joining us. I'm I'm actually just bringing up the calendar right now just to remind myself what date uh, we have him on November 17th. So yeah, oh, you guys perfect. might want to get it. Get get, uh, get registered so you can come in and, and hear your colleague there. But yeah, yeah, totally. Excited. And I'll in, I'll include all the links for everything we've been talking about in in the media that goes out with this stuff. So we're getting close to the end here. Uh, do you have any advice for people starting out in cybersecurity? Yeah, for sure. Gosh, you know, I, I, I keep answering questions like this in, in, you know, either conversations or in LinkedIn messages. And I, I keep telling myself, I need to just like write a, a blog post about this because <laughs> it, it, it seems to be something that, that folks are looking for. And so the first thing I'll do is I'll give a plug to, to a good friend of mine, but somebody who's doing some really awesome things for folks coming into this space is uh, Gerald, uh, Gerald Osier. He, um, he runs a YouTube channel called Simply Cyber. And what I like about his, his delivery and, 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 and the, the community he's building is it's just so incredibly inclusive of folks at all skill levels, of all backgrounds. Like it doesn't, you know, because one of the challenges with, with, with InfoSec, and, and this might ruffle some feathers, but there's, there's a little bit of, depending on you know, which side of it or which, which circles you're in, there's some gatekeepy kind of, yeah. you know, elitism sort of stuff. And none of that, none of that stands in, 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 in the community that Jerry's building. It's very much like, uh, hey, everybody's welcome, you know, whether you have a background in this stuff or not. 
And so, and his, and his content, his delivery is super uh, digestible and, and, and inclusive. And, and, and so that's a cool place to go if this is a career field that, that's interesting to you. And that's a really cool community to kind of join. And it's just going to help you immediately learn about all the other, uh, you know, avenues and paths that you could take from there. Uh, so that's one quick plug. But then just from my own personal experience, something that I think was invaluable in my sort of um, uh, rise in, in, in capabilities and experience is, you know, um, don't don't sit back and assume that like, you know, you know, academia or, or even high high price trainings and things like that are going to be the thing that makes you good at this work. Those things absolutely help. But but what will really help you sharpen your capabilities and make you uh, marketable as as an entry level person is putting the time in, you know, and, 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 and learning some of these capabilities, learning, you know, these concepts, you know, if you're reading about something and you don't fully understand all the little bits and pieces, you know, spin up a virtual machine, you know, and, and, and test and try these Piece things. And yeah. You're going to, you're going to mess some stuff up. You might not be super productive the first couple of times doing this, but I guarantee you every time you mess around, you're going to learn something new that you didn't already know. And so the more repetitions and iterations of that, that you do, the better and better you'll be in ways you couldn't have uh, possibly imagined. And so uh, that's the advice I, I generally give folks is, hey, you know, get you a free copy of VMware Player and spin up a, a free VM you can download from Microsoft, by the way. You can get free copies of Windows 10 VMs. Spin it up and go mess with things and go break things and get, you know, go, you know, put a, put in, put a uh, lightweight. By the way, here's a plug for Leave It Charlie. You guys make, uh, you guys make available two free EDR sensors to anybody, which is kind of like yeah. the AWS free tier, which I love because if, for instance, if somebody wanted to go learn AWS cloud stuff, they don't have to spend any money. They could play with the free tier and, and learn a lot. Well, I like that Lima Charlie has a similar mechanism. So if you want to learn like, well, what's EDR do and how does it work? You can spend $0 and deploy two Lima Charlie agents and figure it out real quick. And so, you know, find those little nuggets, those little free things that you can do to, to raise your, your knowledge level, but just know that nobody's going nobody's gonna to tell you to do it. Nobody's going to give you the, 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 the checklist of things to do. Um, just start and, and let it evolve as, as, uh, as you go. Very cool. Good advice. Um, last one for you. Uh, do you have any predictions for the future? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a hard one, but, uh, and kind of open-ended, you know, I have a prediction that, that, that I, 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 I keep kind of resting on, but I'd like to think that one day, like you're going to see the general workforce, uh, you know, folks that are that are using computers for their day, their, their daily work, which is probably, you know, a good, a good strong majority of the workforce um, that that we're going to kind of start to see the days of, of everybody having full functional, you know, uh, you know, code running machines on their desks or under their desks or in their laps. Uh, and, and migrate to, uh, you know, to much thinner, you know, or I would say less powerful uh, versions of that, you know, and, and there's a real world, you know, example, of this is things like Chromebooks, right? These very limited, but still, you know, you can still do 98%. Matter of fact, you guys run on Chromebooks, don't you? That yep. just on yeah, we're a yeah. Chrome shop. Like, yeah, yeah. Which is which is brilliant because you guys are doing incredibly technical things and you're doing them on Chromebooks. But I would love to see the rest of organizations and enterprises maybe not necessarily move to Chromebooks, but but I'd love to see the Microsoft equivalent, which they were like underway with for some time and then abandoned. But when when so much of the attack vectors that we deal with these days are because of the unnecessary amount of compute power that everyone has at their disposal that, you know, if your job involves nothing but using a web browser, do you really need the ability to run advanced scripts and, 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 you know, uh, uh, you know, un unsigned payloads on your, on your computer? No, probably just need a web browser. Uh, and yeah. so, 
one prediction I have, just because I, it only makes sense, is that we start to consolidate and simplify the the devices that 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 folks are using that are oftentimes the entry point for so many of these breaches and intrusions that we see. Uh, to, to, to second that, though, one thing I don't think is going anywhere is the human threat of all of this, right? The, yes. uh, the the social engineering aspect. I, actually, I think we're going to see more and more of that as we continue to reduce and reduce the, 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 the more technical and traditional vectors. Like, if I can't get JavaScript to run in your system anymore, all right, I'm switching to, I'm going to, you know, social engineer you and find and a way to... And fakes and all that kind of stuff it, it, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so more of the human exploits and less of the uh, technology exploits as... You know, as zero trust, as buzzwordy as it is, as things like that, you know, continue uh, uh, moving forward and organizations catch up, I, I think you're going to see that shift. Interesting. Well, awesome, Erica. Thank you so much for the time. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Chris. Cheers. And that is a wrap for this fifth episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, it would be really helpful if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening from. Again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.